Welcome to Beyond Carbon, the podcast where we find out how investors are thinking about climate change, sustainability, ESG, and a whole range of related issues beyond carbon. This is George Dyer, and today uh, Chris Ito and I talk to Tom Soto. Tom is uh, an impact investor and entrepreneur, civil rights leader, really amazing background in history, working at the intersection of politics, activism, and finance. And yeah, we talk about his family's legacy, the amazing story of both of his parents and their careers in politics, uh, his journey into impact investing, um, you know, again, that interplay between investing in economics with politics and activism, as well as his latest venture, which is a, a new fund called Diversity for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is a strategy to buy and enhance biomass plants using standing deadwood and forests and agriculture waste to um, create carbon positive energy with biochar as a byproduct to offset some of the negative impacts of agricultural fertilizers and the like. Tom also talks about diversity in the asset management industry, an issue where he's been a big leader for a long time, but an area where he has direct experience as a gay Latino fund manager. So yeah, we're really pleased to be releasing this episode as part of um, our celebration of Pride Month in June. And yeah, it's a great conversation, but we just barely, barely scratched the surface of some of the things that Tom has done. He's also the co-founder of the LA Clean Tech Incubator. He's a board member at the uh, NRDC, you know, one of the nation's biggest green groups. He's on the board of the LA Dodgers Foundation uh, and a lot more. So really fascinating guy and uh, really pleased that he joined us on what turned out to be his birthday, which we didn't know. But it's a great conversation. And I think, you know, one of those, we'll have to have him back for a part two to, to cover a bit more of all the things he's involved with. I hope you enjoy it. Some great stories and uh, great history hearing from Tom Soto. So here you go. Hi, Tom. How you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. How's everything out in LA? Everything's good. We're getting out of the May gray and we finally have some sun today. So I think it's going to change everyone's seasonal anxiety and adjust it up a little bit. So <laughs> our downs, I guess I should say. Nice, nice. Good to hear. Well, we're so uh, excited to talk to you today. And um, I know there's tons of things we could cover, but would love to just for our listeners, have you give a quick kind of background overview of the bite-sized version of your career and how you got into the investment space. Sure. A lot of life is not anything you plan. It's much more a journey of anticipation. And we always get to a certain point and we find out that it's not the point, it's the journey getting there. And much of what I have behind me is a journey. Today, I actually turn 60 years old. And, you know, I'm reflecting a lot today on you know, not just my accomplishments, but, you know, what made me, what got me here and why? And I have to credit a lot of that with my mom and dad and the culture of my family. So I would probably put that as the number one contributor to me winding up in investments. So then the next question is, but then why investments and not nonprofit or political or elected? And that's because it was embedded into my genetics that whatever you did, you left what you had in better shape than what you got it. Mm -hmm. And that was the basic tenet of community service and improvement that my mom and dad put into all six of their kids. And at the end of the day, my parents, who were profound civil rights leaders in the Latino community, who had 
migrated from the farm worker movement and the labor movement into politics helped to bring to California a modern era of how this state was going to be run and eventually become the fifth and the fourth largest economy. And, you know, that's way back in 1962 before I was even born, Mm -hmm. when my father was the first Latino elected to state legislature and had the courage to engage in the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, which was seen as quote-unquote communist, who supported fair housing initiatives, because this is in the day where Blacks and Jews and Latinos could literally be redlined out of communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of opposition to that in those days in which, you know, ultimately he was sacrificed by his own party in 1966, where they redrew his assembly district and made it a Republican district. And with the Reagan landslide that came, he was forced out of office. Hmm. That did not eliminate his appetite for community activism, civil rights, and Latino rights and labor rights. It actually empowered him more. And then he worked for the Bobby Kennedy campaign in 1968. Hmm. And we all know what happened there. But, you know, he was a lifelong activist. And so, too, was my mother, who was his campaign manager. She, in her own right, had a profile and was an activist out there and was very close to the farm worker movement still and so forth. But, you know, a year to the day that we buried my father, she was elected to the state assembly in what was a brand new assembly seat. And then due to a death in Congress, which allowed for a state senator to move from the state Senate to Congress, we then ran a special election and she was elected to the state Senate and spent the last 10 years of her life in the state Senate. And in those 10 years, she had 120 bills that went through the legislature and were signed in law. She had one of the most successful careers late in life from being elected at 72, being turned out at 83, and passing away. And we buried her on March 3rd, 2009, which ironically, as I eulogized her, her two favorite days was my dad's birthday, March 3rd, and election day, because she was a huge proponent of the American spirit, democracy, and voting rights. And so it was a Tuesday that we had her funeral on my dad's birthday, and it was an election day. So, you know, those two contributed to a huge amount of my thought process on where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, you have your own identity to confront. And in my world, I was in college and became an activist. And when I got done with college, I became an even more well-known and hopefully effective activist, especially in the area of urban environmental justice, Mm -hmm. i.e. Mothers of East L.A. and Concerned Citizens of South Central and so forth. I worked right after college where I was an activist at UCLA, Students' Rights, Affirmative Action, the Anti-Apartheid Divestment Campaign of UC Regents. And quite frankly, that's where I got my first taste on how capital affects social fabrics. There was a great leader in our midst who, in the future, I was able to work for and I became a senior advisor. And that was Tom Bradley, who was mayor of Los Angeles. And he was the first major city mayor to lead a divestment campaign 
from South Africa. So anybody that was dealing with the pensions in LA mm-hmm. or investing in LA could not have relations investing in South Africa per the apartheid system. And so at UCLA, me and uh, a number of colleagues of mine who were students led an effort to force the UC regions to divest from those banks and investment managers doing business with South Africa. And it took two years to do. We had then Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was announced as the Nobel Peace Prize winner that year, come out to Royce Hall. And he basically shamed the the UC regents. Of course, everybody wants to touch his robe, including the regents who opposed divestment. So by the end of his visit to UCLA, that gave us the leverage necessary to get a vote to finally remove UC Regents resources from those doing business in South Africa. And that was my first real out of the shadow of my parents' activism that I had. But I also understood how politics and economics seem to converge and that that affects the quality of life, what you and I would call governance. And so, you know, I became an activist and my first job after college was working for a local assembly member who was chair of the subcommittee on higher education who controlled the purse strings of the UC regents. And so his name was Tom Hayden. And Tom was very profound in the 1960s. He was an author of the Port Huron Statements, which set up the Students for Democratic Society. He was a large opponent of the Vietnam War, a civil rights activist, a freedom writer. And he was married to a well-known actress at the time who's still popular, Jane Fonda. And between those two, they had formed the Campaign for Economic Democracy. And I was asked by Tom when I graduated from college if I would be interested in being the political director for the Southern California side of Campaign for Economic Democracy for he and Jane. And that gave me wings to basically fly within the environmental movement. And we used CED, as we called it, as an effort to pass Prop 65, the Safe Drinking Water and Toxics Initiative, Prop 99, which was the Tobacco Tax Initiative, We use CED to manage a campaign to close the Rancho Seco nuclear power plant in Sacramento. It was a hugely successful organization that sought to build a base of political supporters and get them elected to local offices who ultimately would become the farm league for the state legislature. And that's where I cut my teeth on professional politics and activism And it gave me capacity to become more of an environmental activist in my own right. And that's where I was uh, asked to sit on the board of the Coalition for Clean Air and become president of the Coalition for Clean Air. And that helped to change everything in my future. And that put me very high altitude as a national voice for urban air quality and environmental justice. And that's basically where I began to get more involved on the economic side of my activism, and it really was simple. I knew that there was a lot of compliance frustration with Clean Air Act standards and Clean Water Act standards, and there wasn't a lot of technology platforms that can meet the regulatory demands for the 1990s and beyond. And so I began to become more interested in identifying those technologies, 
identifying finance capacity and putting them together and getting them to market. Mm -hmm. And that was the first foray that I had into getting into clean tech, what ultimately became climate tech. So I was a part-time presidential appointee. Uh, I was advising Al Gore and Bill Clinton on what became basically climate change standards and green jobs. By that time, I had a very successful practice called PS Enterprises, where I was representing a lot of folks on compliance and regulatory issues. I was helping to put clean tech with finance and helping them get to market. Some of them were going public, like fuel cell energy, on and on. I just was having a blast. And the world was changing at a high velocity. It was scaling, and we had leadership at the federal level that had the imagination to make it happen and give young people like myself, especially Latinos, opportunity. So Danny, under his leadership as NAA, New America Alliance, which was the organization we founded, that's the organization that lit the fuse on the legislative process to ensure that diversity and ultimately we became known as emerging manager programs were adopted and embraced by the CIOs of the state's pensions. Mm -hmm. By this time, guess who was the Senate Oversight Committee on PERS chair? Senator Nel Soto. Mm. So we had lunch with my mother one day, and um, it was, this is, Mijo, why are, you in, why are you in Sacramento? And I said, well, we're trying to raise a fund, Danny, and we want to meet with Cal Purs, but no one wanted to meet with us. And, you know, she says, well, why would they meet with you? It's like, Mom, they just don't let us in. And he says, oh, really? And he says, well, here's a dirty little secret. Those guys don't get paid out of use of proceeds, we pay them. They come, they get funded by the general fund. And CalSTRS and CalPERS employees are CalPERS recipients and defined contributors. He says, why wouldn't we have a hearing to bring this up and begin to ask questions? So my mm -hmm. mom had what was essentially what we called the shame hearings. And she <laughs> basically shamed the pensions into bringing her in exchange for a budget you will bring me a diversity program, and we will begin to see how we could get the Sentinellas, the Magic Johnsons, the Victor McFarlands, the Palladiums, the Vistas, on and on and on, some consideration. But no one's returning your calls, their calls now. So those were the days when all those folks were marketing and they couldn't get funded. Um, you know, you could talk to Marcos Rodriguez of Palladium. He'll say, Nell Soto got me my first gig because CalPERS and CalSTRS saw the light. And wow. to Chris Amlin's credit, he definitely saw the light. And he turned on the spigot and created one of the more aggressive uh, emerging manager programs that became the model for others. So we at the NAA took what Chris had done, the legislative process that my mom had embedded into everyone's thinking and we held legislative workshops for other latino lawmakers and black lawmakers from around the country to do the same thing and that was the the that lit the fuse for the illinois teachers illinois pensions to do the same thing texas to do the same thing new jersey new york new york city and that was the first generation of the emerging manager program and by that time I am now kicked out of the canoe and I start 
my first fund, which is called Creighton Equity Partners. And that was a reflection of my activism, my expertise in managing private equity and understanding how to do a deal. More so by that time, uh, CalPERS and CalSTRS, beyond recognizing the need for diversity in fund management, also was constructing an investment committee motion to put $2 billion to work in this new sector called clean tech. Mm-hmm. Their CIO at the time, you know, Mark Anson. Yeah. Mark was the CIO. And so I worked with Mark and Chris and their trustees to help me and Alan Emkin from Pension Consulting Alliance, now Makeda. We all worked to develop this investment committee motion, which a year later was adopted. Within a year, year and a half, I had a $200 million diverse first time fund investing in the clean tech space, which was emerging. That's how I got to the first generation of where I'm at right now, was through that very long environmental justice activist process, which included urban environmental justice, growing into climate change, but also green jobs, economic development. Oh, and by the way, we have to answer the question about diversity and fund management. This is 2001. And that was a huge question then that got huge amounts of resistance from Wall Street and the pensions and the Taft-Hartleys that historically never found a need to involve diversity within their agenda. You know, there's this term, we want to depoliticize the process. And I remember my mom being told that by a CIO. He said, Senator, you don't understand what we do. You see, we're fiduciaries, and our purpose is to make sure, among other things, in addition to generating great returns, is to depoliticize the process. Mm -hmm. My mother stood up from behind her desk, and she said, listen, young man, (laughs) people like me with my history, when they hear that term depoliticize, it means you don't want people who look like me in the room. Mm. I've spent too much of my life on the front lines of civil rights. My kid was strapped to my chest while I was marching with Martin Luther King. His father hosted Martin Luther King on the floor of the legislature. So don't use that term. Mm. And so that was her teeth coming out. And those CIOs kind of began to retreat and embrace what she wanted to do. And that's, to me, you know, why we were able to have great returns. You know, diverse fund managers generate, I want to say, a, a 7 to 14% greater net return than. But in my world, if my diverse fund, you know, if you have a hurdle rate of 7 or 8% and you only get to 6%, I get fired. But if you're a large TPG or Carlisle or whomever, you know, you do 6%, they adjust the hurdle rate, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating, Tom. And, uh, no, it's an amazing story. First of all, happy birthday. We had no idea we were getting you on your birthday here, but that's, that's fantastic. And, uh, such an amazing story. And I think, yeah, that intersection and interplay between the political the activism, the environmentalism and the investment world, you know, is real where sort of these systems all overlap and interplay. And I think your perspective on all of it is just fascinating. And, I love the tie back to the original divestment movement because obviously that's been such a big driver of a lot of these conversations more recently around fossil fuel divestment and the like. And a lot of that was modeled after the apartheid. Movement. Right. Yeah, no, it's 
amazing to hear that story, but I uh, definitely want to have time to dive into your latest venture as well and hear more about, about what you're up to now. Sure. Well, my first two funds, you know, one was 200 million. The other one was targeting 300 million. When we got about 110, 120 million, an offer came in from trust companies of the West to buy my fund. They were being bought by Carlisle. Carlisle wanted to start an alternative platform. They were very interested in diversity in ESG. So they had a commitment to me for like 20 million bucks. And they asked me one day, instead of us putting a commitment to you, would you be willing to let us buy your fund? You come and be managing director of our debut alternatives platform. And I did. And to their credit, they gave me everything I needed. And we went from about 300 million in AUM on the alternative side, to about 10 and a half billion over four years and had a great run there. I exited that, focused on my family office, did, you know, some meaningful investments, uh, you know, on the side. I had been a trustee and longtime supporter of Aspiration, the online fossil fuel free bank and other portfolio companies. And then, you know, quite frankly, I wanted to go back to my roots on climate change and economic development in the midst of seeing our forests, millions of acres burning. And uh, my thought was... In the midst of all of this, we're having rolling blackouts and so forth. So I wanted to come up with a model, and that constituted D4IR, which is diversity in the fourth industrial revolution, where I could take uh, technology, traditional hardware, combine it with software, all within the energy transition world, and put it into one format. And my thought was to come up with peak and base load supply so that when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining, we can meet the economic demands for our state and our country. And, you know, it, it was in 2019 where I noticed the same day that we had rolling blackouts in Silicon Valley was the same day in Santa Barbara that Google achieved quantum supremacy. So it was a tale of two cities within a state where how could the fifth largest economy on planet Earth allow or accept this as standard economic policy, rolling blackouts, wasn't acceptable. And so my thought was, why don't we come up with a micro and regional biomass grid where we could put young people to work to harvest bark beetle dead trees in our forest. We could monetize that wood by putting it into the supply and fuel chain for biomass facilities. So where we are reducing the risk of catastrophic fires by removing the standing fuel, i.e. dead trees. We're removing the need for remote transmission, which is the spark to those fires, because now we have in-state capacity. And we're building in-state capacity and monetizing carbon and biochar, which are the end product, the pyrolytic gasification. And so here we are with 24-hour dispatchable power that is fully renewable and net carbon negative feeding the grid at peak and base load because, you know, solar is carbon neutral, wind is carbon neutral, geothermal, well, biomass can be made carbon negative. And when we're talking about 1.5 degrees Celsius that we need to avoid, we need to go past net zero. We're going to have to find opportunities to go net carbon negative. And here's an opportunity where we could do it on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. And my mandate has been that within two years to have a bicoastal national footprint 
of net carbon negative, fully renewable biomass facilities that are feeding peak and base loads. So when the sun is not shining, the wind is not blowing, the economy of our country continues to spin while putting people to work, doing really great green jobs and moving our country forward in an era of climate change. And so thankfully, I have a really great team. My family office has been underwriting about 300 megawatts, probably about 12 power plants across the country that are in due diligence. I'm raising a $300 million fund. We have closed on about, we've had a first close of about 15 million, have several hundred million in debt that we're looking at as well. And, you know, we have a lot of irons in the fire, but we're facing the same headwinds that most funds face, especially even though this is my fourth fund, it is a first time diverse owned fund. And so I'm hitting a lot of those headwinds, but I chose early on not to go to market with a fund and a blind pool. So I went to market with a fund that I'm underwriting due diligence on that I paid for fund formation and paid for the due diligence on 300 megawatts of capacity. And then I went to market and that helped me to get a first close, which took nine months, but that's pretty fast in today's market. And then we have a lot of wins in our sale because of the type of leadership that we have from President Biden, from Vice President Harris, from the Secretary of Energy. And there is a considerable amount of equity going into this market. But here's something that's very different that I absolutely appreciate because I was there at the ground floor when we used to call it the people of color in the environmental movement, which ultimately became environmental justice. And that is the executive order Justice 40 that basically 40% of all resources need to be committed to underserved communities and diverse platforms. Mm. And that's me. So that means you know, of the $400 billion that the Department of Energy's loan program office has to put out, 40% of that has to go to affect underserved markets or be invested in underserved or diverse platforms like D4. And I think what my moonshot here is, let's disrupt coal and fossil fuels from our energy blend. And the era that we're in, this administration, what I am doing, and the appetite of the investment community is behind us on wanting to make sure that we can do that. Now, I'm not saying we're going to get rid of fossil fuels and coal, but even if we got rid of a percentage of them, just a sliver, we're going to improve public health, we're going to reduce carbon from going in the atmosphere, and we're going to have a new set of economics that will scale and grow, and there will be less and less and less fossil fuel in our future and carbon in our future. So, Tom, you know, why do you think biomass to biochar for energy, you know, hasn't been adopted a little bit more more broadly? And why aren't people talking about it a little more? I mean, what you just described, right, with this venture is you're going to create jobs, you're going to reduce the risk of catastrophic fires, right, reduce the need for remote generation and, and transmission, satisfy peak demand, negative emissions, helped underserved communities. This checks a lot of boxes. Why do you think more people are not talking about biomass? Well, I don't think. I know why. There, um, there's about three distinct reasons. One, biomass historically has had a black eye because it's been done wrong. 
you know, going into virgin forests and areas and using that wood to fuel incineration. That's not what we do. We're using agricultural waste, which we have an infinite supply of in California. We're the breadbasket of the world. And you can't take that ag waste like almond trees and almond shells and put it in landfills because it converts to methane, which is an even worse greenhouse gas. Or you can't burn it out in the field. So it has to be mulch. It has to be compost. But it could also go into biomass sectors, right? So that's one thing. And then you have high hazard forest waste, which could be used as fuel. Again, an infinite supply. The other thing that makes it compelling is that only recently, within the past five years, thank you, CARB, because of AB32 and SB100, which reaffirmed it, we have a carbon market. We have a price on carbon that is steadily rising and giving us a floor of economics that ensures an investment in this area. And then the third reason is 38 states, now maybe more, have renewable portfolio standards that require their utilities to buy renewable. California can't buy enough of it. The utilities here, Edison, PG&E, and so forth. And so they're looking for not just renewable sources of power, but ones that might be diverse owned. Here I am, a gay Latino, owning a diverse platform for renewable power. How many boxes am I checking for them? and giving them a quality service, and generating carbon credits and biochar. Biochar, by the way, is a replacement for ammonia and nitrate-based fertilizers. So it enriches the soil by consuming carbon and spitting out oxygen, gives you a higher yield, uses much less water, and there's a high demand for that. There's a high demand for carbon credits. All the stuff that we do on our iPhones and our iPads, and it's all big data. It's all IP. And so the Apples and the Walmarts and the Amazons of the world are asking for more energy, thus contributing more carbon, and they need more carbon offsets. So they're the buyers of the carbon. So all of that put into one box is biomass. Yeah. Uh, would be interested in, in, in three minutes on sort of your take on the offset market, right? A lot of controversies. You know, press seems to be looking for companies that are, you know, taking credit, no pun intended, for what amounts to be worthless offsets. I, I think when a, when a market emerges like this and a market has been set because of the California cap and trade program, which sure. and it actually has been successful to the tune of over a billion dollars a year of transactions and 150 provinces and states and countries participating in it. It's a success. And there will always be naysayers as a new set of economics emerges, especially if it takes economics away from them. There is still suspicion about whether this helps carbon reduction and so forth, but we can't get lost in the details. We can't let perfection get in the way of progress. The best way to get compliance to me is market-based incentives, like the acid rain provision did in the 1990s to get rid of acid rain by being able to have an emission cap on sulfur oxides, that worked. People don't even remember what acid rain is. And now we're gonna do the same thing with carbon, trading capacity and markets that will help to make that occur. But there's going to be a lot of confusion between where we're at now and where we need to be. But we definitely have the type of regulatory and legislative levers in place to make this happen and watchdog it 
as we mature this market, but we can't give up on it, you know, and we can't confuse carbon and carbon markets with criterion pollutants like soot and PM10, ozone, hydrocarbons that need to be managed at ground level through other types of regulatory demands, like what the South Coast Air Quality Management District does for stationary sources. You know, we need to make sure that public health and criteria pollutants are eliminated, especially in low-income diverse communities. So 30 years ago, I was a skeptic about market-based incentives. I am no longer, and they can work with good discipline. Tom, we'll let you go, but uh, thank you so much. We're going to have to have you back on, I think, to keep covering these these topics, but uh, it's so exciting the work you're doing. We really appreciate you joining us. Happy to jump on again, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Take care. Take care. Happy birthday. Likewise. Have a great birthday. Take care.